Good morning. I am not Ty. I'm Debbie Richards. She'll be up here soon. I'm a lot shorter than her. I've been part of this church family since 2017. My family moved to York from Grove City, Pennsylvania. And I've been married to my husband, Sam, for 17 years. And we have three kids, Elliot, Lucy, and Mary. I currently serve as the prayer coordinator for York Alliance Church, where I get to share my passion for prayer with others by organizing, encouraging, and unifying other intercessors as we serve our church family and the lost. I love how we remind each other of our identity in Christ and our access to the throne as sons and daughters. We just bring others with us into his presence. We agree about his kingdom work here on earth, and we position ourselves to receive from his spirit. If we are actively discipling others, then we're all intercessors, right? One of the best ways you can stretch and grow in your prayer life is to pray. Pray by yourself. Pray scripture. Pray with different people. Walking in the woods with music or without. In confession. With thanksgiving. Or simply make lists of things. Of things you're grateful for. Questions you have for Jesus. Daily confessions. Burdens for others. Then take time to listen, write things down, and listen more. I didn't just choose some of these habits as a lifestyle one day, although you could probably do that. Disciplines are helpful and important. My journey started in a praying household, but huge chunks of formation happened later in life as I worked out my faith in college, as a young married woman, young mom, and eventually as a 30-something landing here in York. I want to tell you about my church background because I think it's a beautiful piece of my journey. Through it, I had the opportunity to experience diversity in worship and prayer practices, which I think better reflects the body of Christ. I grew up in a Pentecostal church where we often prayed all in one voice, as Brian often has us do. There were tambourines in the front row, and I remember taking sermon notes as a teenager while the pastor jumped back and forth from Old Testament to New Testament, taught me about parallel passages. In college, I primarily attended a Presbyterian church, but um, I also visited a variety of churches with the college choir that I toured with during Holy Week. Methodist, evangelical, Lutheran churches. I vividly remember um, my first Episcopal Monday-Thursday service, where I was struck by the beauty of high church with its order and reverence, as well as the gravity of our sin preceding the triumphant Resurrection Sunday celebration. As a family, as a young family, we attended an Anglican church for about two years where we were introduced to the Book of Common Prayer. It became very important to us during a season of Sam's job when we felt like we had run out of words to pray. We needed written prayers to anchor us to truth when our hearts couldn't muster any more on their own. I also remember memorizing lots of scripture and scripture songs with my young kids at that time to continue anchoring us. I grew up in a household where prayer was an expected part of our routine at meals and bedtime, but also when people were sad, afraid, and even angry. It was not always the first thing we did, but it was something we came back to and we understood that it was important because of that model. I wanted to be intentional about doing the same thing with the family gave us. He used that time of suffering during those different seasons of Sam's job for our good and his glory even though I didn't always feel it at the time. Another aspect of my journey was authentic community, which Brian is always talking to us about as well. Um, And this is through women's Bible study that I was in for about six years. I joined a women's Bible study as a young mom and found myself immersed in a group of women that followed Jesus in the mundane and beauty of motherhood. They prayed transparently and fervently, wrestled through scripture, and magically showed up at each other's doors to drop off a meal and pick up your kids in one motion. I did my first Priscilla Shire study with them about discerning the voice of God. And it was there that I realized my prayer life and relationship with Jesus would remain stunted if I held reservations and fear in my heart about God's spirit. Two sweet friends taught me that God is a God of order and not chaos, and that he's gentle with us and doesn't force. He invites They showed me that my fear and discomfort of not knowing how the Spirit might speak to me or through me was creating a rift in my relationship with God. I was separated from part of the Trinity. I learned that he is trustworthy in all his ways, and I began to trust a process of healing that eventually took me through 
Some of the same material we used here at York Alliance through Redemption Group, which I did end up participating in shortly after we moved here. The pathway to my healing began with repentance for many lies I believed about myself, about God, and about others. Um, this opened the doorway for me to trust the Lord with more difficult steps, forgiving others, confessing more sin, and receiving God's mercy. Later on, it meant trusting God when he spoke to me through pictures, other people, including a counselor, music, urgent prompts to do something or say something, and even dreams. Each time I took a step in the direction of obedience, the Lord's voice became even clearer. I recognized the gentle, convicting voice of the Good Shepherd because I was saturating myself in scripture. I was better able to discern the condemning voice of the enemy of my soul because he left me guilt-ridden and ashamed. My soul was transformed and restored. I understood my identity in Christ and was learning to walk in the freedom he offered because of prayer and godly community. And I need these constant reminders and I need to celebrate these parts of my story because sometimes it gets hard again. I forget that I'm his daughter and then he gave me freedom. I slip back into fear, people-pleasing, bitterness, and anger over life's brokenness, including my own. And prayer and Bible study can become stale and dutiful. Prayer reminds us of our dependence on God and our need for a savior because we need him to help us even pray and have the desire and willingness to seek his face at times. He is truly the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you bow your heads as I close this in prayer using parts of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be here this morning. I'm mindful that um, I... Well, I'm pretty sure anyway that this is the first time that I've stood before you and haven't been, and I'm not going to give you an update about Bangkok, Thailand. So um, what a privilege. I was so thankful for um, Pastor Brian's invitation to bring the word this morning and to be the, um, the first in the series on Back to the Basics and that it's on prayer. And of course, that's always a real exciting uh, topic for me to talk about. I love talking about prayer and encouraging people into a deeper life of prayer and uh, really appreciate uh, Debbie's faith story and uh, reference to her family. And when I was preparing and I was thinking, you know, more about, once again anyway, more about uh, how did it really begin for me that this desire was birthed in me for prayer, that there was something there. And I, and I too grew up in a home where prayer was a big deal, especially after my father died. And I can remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing my mom pacing the floor and praying and praying and praying and praying. She would pray for hours. I would sometimes go to sleep with that sound in my head where she'd be praying. She became more and more intentional about praying about things out loud in front of us, uh, my brother and I, and about uh, leading us in prayer and asking us to pray and, and telling us about how God was answering prayer. And, and I can remember standing there in front of her like this. And yet she continued. And I would just say that to all of you who are parents here and you try to share Jesus or talk about, be excited about Jesus or lead your children into deeper discipleship and all you get are rolled eyes or heavy sighs, I would say don't stop. 
keep doing it. Keep doing it because it's the right thing to do and because God calls you to that kind of discipleship in your home and to model that in your home, this, this knowing, this deep faith that says God is hearing us, God is answering us. And he is and he does. But here we are, back to basics, prayer, first thing. I mean, you know, you, there's a, a bajillion, right, sermons that could be uh, given on prayer, the whys of prayer. Why do we pray? How should we pray? What, what shouldn't we pray? Prayers from Scripture, the biggies, you know, that we could go into, and how did they pray? And There's so much that could be said, but I felt that God had really laid on my heart that we should stick to two things this morning, and that's what we're going to do. Because we're all on a different journey. We're all at different places, and I feel like these two things apply to every single one of us, no matter where we are in our walk with God or in our prayer walk, wherever we are. I don't know about you, but me, phrases from Scripture like pray without ceasing are like, whoa, how in the world do you even do that? What does that mean, pray without ceasing? You know, we're supposed to be watchful and pray. What, it, what, what do we mean by that, really? What, how do we really engage this life of prayer? There's so many things about it we don't understand, right? And part of that is because it is a mystery. Prayer is a mystery. You're not going to be able to figure it out. It's not like A plus B is going to equal C every single time. You know, or we pray this way one time, and, well, I'm going to pray that way again. No, no, it doesn't work that way. And maybe the greatest mystery I have found in studying about prayer, thinking about prayer, is about the fact that the God of the universe has chosen to wait for us to participate with him in prayer before accomplishing his purposes and his will on earth. The God of the universe waiting for us to participate with him. And you might say, well, where do you get that? Well, I'm thinking of two specific places in the word, but there are many. But in Daniel chapter 9, it says there, Daniel, now he'd been exiled to Babylon, right? He was part of the exiles that were taken. Daniel chapter 9, it says there, he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 25 in Jeremiah, and he reads that the desolation of Jerusalem was only supposed to last 70 years. And he's like, whoa, we're getting there. It's, it's that time. So what does he do? Does he sit back and start packing his bags like, hey, I'm, I'm out of here soon? Did it? No. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to fast and pray and cry out to the Lord to make this thing happen. This is what you said. This is what I'm waiting for. He participated with God, even though it was right there in front of him. And then again, we all know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? He calls down fire from heaven. God consumes the sacrifice, the water, the whole thing. And then God gives the word that the rain is coming. Tell Ahab the rain's coming. Elijah does that. And then instead of Elijah getting under an umbrella or running home or whatever, he goes and he starts sending a servant to look for the storm clouds. And he prays seven times before the rain comes. Again, he participates with God and seeing his will accomplished. To me, that is a huge mystery that God would want to include me, include us, and in seeing his purposes accomplished on earth. So as we look at these things this morning, which are these two main things, I want us to keep that in mind as we do. Now those people in Daniel and, or Daniel and Elijah they prayed even though God had already given the answer. But what is keeping us from praying ineffectively or maybe not even praying at all? Those are the things that we need to consider because it has to do with the condition of our heart, with the condition of our heart. You know, when we talk about everybody being on a different journey, something that came to my mind was when I was a little girl, my family went to visit an aunt that lived on the western side of Montana in the Rocky Mountains. And this, this was a four-day journey from Detroit, south of Detroit, Michigan, way down there, up through the Upper Peninsula, all the way across, right? You know, four days in a car to get there. But once I got there, it was like this amazing place. I'd never seen a mountain before living in flat lower Michigan. And 
two miles down the road from my aunt, her closest relative was this Cherokee Indian family. And they lived on a large piece of property and we loved going there and I loved it because the woman of the household, her name was Luella, she was very petite. I remember as a kid that I was almost eye to eye with her. And she had a Great Dane dog that came up to her armpit. And then she always wore this big cardigan sweater with these big pockets in it. And this, and in a pocket was a toy poodle. I mean, you know, Great Dane, toy poodle. You know, she had a pet fawn named Susie who walked in and out of her house and would eat off of her table. I mean, this was like a kid's like, whoa. You know, I'm like, it was like Dr. Doolittle right in front of me. You know, she was just this amazing woman. And it's like, she, the animals all loved her. They were everywhere. And we just loved going there. One day we were there, and we had been there for quite a while. And it was getting to be dusk. And Luella went out on the porch. And I just kind of followed her out there, because I loved being next to her. And she stood on the porch, and she started yelling, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? She kept yelling this, you know. And I remember standing there just kind of looking at her, you know, waiting for sign. Something's going to happen. I knew it. I mean, and um, sure enough, here comes this rooster, comes running towards her, runs right up to her feet at the sound of her voice, and she picks up the rooster, and she said, where are you as blind? And if, I, if he doesn't run towards my voice, he'll stay out and the animals could get him. I have to put him in the coop. And I would like to just take that simple illustration and say to us, we all have a certain level of blindness about who we are. And God calls to us continually, where are you? Come to me. I want to bring you into safety. I want to embrace you in my arms. I want to take you and carry you. Where are you? So this morning as we gather, as we look at God's word together, as we think about the hindrances that might, there might be to our life of prayer, but our lives in Christ. Let's consider that. Where are we and where does God want us to go? I'm gonna ask Bill if he would come now and read God's word. I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan rebukes David. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, and he let it lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to visit him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives! The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with them with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word, for even this hard story. But we thank you, Father, for the example given to us of receiving the hard word, softening our hearts, and turning from sin. So, Lord, I pray that you would take what is of your spirit even this morning and sow it in our hearts, but may everything else fall to the ground and die. But speak, Lord. We want to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This account in 2 Samuel, I think most of us are familiar with it. But this account, this incident that happened in the life of David led to what is probably the second most known psalm, Psalm 51, after Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, but Psalm 51 that says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love where David began to confess his sin with Bathsheba before the Lord. And it's become a wonderful template for, for us to follow, to bring before the Lord our hearts of confession. So where do we go from here? Isaiah 57, 14 says this, Build up, build up, prepare the road. That's the highway. Remove the obstacles, hindrances, out of the way of my people. I would like us to think this morning, when we think of a highway, if we think of our own hearts, our soul before the Lord, what we offer to the Lord, our, the innermost part of our being, <clears throat> that's the highway. But what might be in that highway that is blocking or interfering with my relationship with Jesus in any way? <clears throat> my closeness to God, my intimacy with him. <coughs> Excuse me. What might be blocking? For some of us on that highway, it might just be there's like a speed bump. Others, of there's construction going on, or maybe there's this huge pothole that we can't get around, or maybe it's a big boulder in the way of the road. It, you and God know about these things. I don't. But you know this highway, this intimacy that you know you're supposed to have with Jesus. Hopefully you long to have with Jesus, but maybe it's just not there. What are the hindrances that might be in the way? Well, I would like to suggest that there's one overarching hindrance. We, we could make lists of hundreds of things that could be in the way that, or things that keep us from following Christ wholeheartedly, but I'm just talking about an overarching hindrance, and that would be unconfessed sin in our lives. Unconfessed sin in our lives. Neil Anderson says this, in the matter of confession, our eternal destiny is not at, at, at stake, but our daily victory is. 
Not our eternal destiny, but our daily victory is at stake because of unconfessed sin. Now, you might be saying, well, you know, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Um, I asked him to forgive me for my sins. So, you know, what are we talking about here? Now, what we need to understand is that salvation is, gives us the position in Christ. But sanctification, the working out of that, is what makes us like Christ. And that's the goal of God, is to make us like Jesus. Not to keep us happy, not to make us comfortable, but to make us more like Jesus. Why? So that we can be participating with him in his plan for the world. We can be participating in prayer to see his will accomplished on earth. We are becoming more like Christ. Our hearts and minds are connected more to his heart and mind. And we begin to live it out in ways that we never have before. That's what his desire is. So think about this. Think about a, a hose, a garden hose, a long garden hose, you know, and it, costs, it feels like it weighs 40 pounds to undo it, and you undo it to water your garden. And you're, you know, you're watering, and all of a sudden, no more water coming out. I don't know about you, but I hate it when this happens. And you turn around and look, and of course, there's a kink in the hose. There's a kink in the hose. The water is still there, but it's not flowing. The water is still there, but it's not flowing. That's how it kind of is with us. It's not that we're no longer in Christ. It's not that we don't belong to Jesus anymore, however you want to put it. But there is something that is blocking the flow and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The flow is stopped. The flow is stopped. Think about um, in a, if you're in a relation, a significant other relationship, okay, married or not married, but a significant other relationship, and there's, you know, there's been a fight, there's been a disagreement, some words have been said that were unkind, da-da-da-da. I mean, does it change the relationship? Are you still married? Yes. Is there still covenant? Yes. Of course. But yet there's something changed about what? The intimacy of the relationship, right? Because first things first, we got to go and apologize to one another, to humble ourselves before one another, to ask forgiveness, to restore that, the intimacy of the relationship. So when we have unconfessed things in our lives, those be, are part of what on our highway, our intimacy highway towards Christ, with Christ, these things start cropping up. And one thing, you know, we might be able to scuttle around it somehow, but, you know, when we don't take care of things, when we don't keep that highway clear with the Lord, it builds up. It builds up, and they become hindrances. Can I say this, that the overarching thing under that arch that keeps those things in place, keeps us from confessing, is pride. Keeps us from apologizing. Keeps us from humbling ourselves. Pride. You know, it's just, it's too embarrassing. Embarrassment is pride. Instead of my desire for reconciliation with God, my, my desire for reconciliation with you to greater intimacy is thwarted because of pride in my life where I can't appear weak. I can't appear wrong. Pride Let's look at a couple things that God's word says about some of these things. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. Not the Lord rejects me, but the Lord would not hear me. Surely, uh, Isaiah 59, 1-2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his sin doesn't prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. It's an invitation to embrace repentance as a lifestyle. So I want to talk to just give you very quickly four symptoms that might be present if there's a need for heart evaluation and confession. Four symptoms. The first one is doubt. Doubt and unbelief or watering down the truth of God's word that produces doubt. Watering down the truth of God's word, and that's so easy in the culture in which we live, isn't it? 
You know, our pastor, Pastor Brian, loves to refer to Genesis, so let me give you a Genesis reference here, okay? It's Genesis 3.1, when uh, the temptation in the garden, the serpent says to Eve about eating of the tree, about not eating of the tree, did God really say that? Did God really say that? What did he do? He put that doubt into Eve's mind. John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, is it like, did Jesus really say he was the only way to God? Is that really what he meant? When 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about all scripture being inspired by God. Do we find ourselves, is it really, Lord? Did you mean every, I mean, seriously, all? Is there any way in our thinking that we have begun to water down the word of God? Then no, that's not what it really means. That's not what it really says. It casts doubt or unbelief and we've allowed that to fester. Number two, is there a disconnect of our heart, our mouth, and our actions from the influence of the word of God? In other words, I would say in my heart, I believe this or that to be true. I believe that you should um, be full of the spirit and that love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness, all those things should be evident in my life. Yes, that's what I believe. But there are certain groups of people that I hate. I don't have much joy in my life. I have a critical spirit. I'm an angry person. So what I say that I believe to be true, this is what's supposed to be true of a Christ follower, it's not evident in the way that I live. It's not evident in my words or my actions or my relationships. There's a disconnect. And Isaiah 29, 13 says this, these people come near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. God knows our hearts, and that's what he's concerned about. That's what he's concerned about. So we need to ask ourselves, are my mouth, my heart, my mouth, and my lifestyle in alignment with the word of God? I had a, a step-grandfather who was a very religious man, um, but he was a very mean, unkind, proud man. But he knew how to say the right words. And I can remember as a kid, in fact, I would watch, when we would always sit down to dinner at his, their house, he always prayed. And I can remember I would keep my eyes open because as soon as he started praying, I would start timing him. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. Because I wanted to see how quickly he was going to pray this time and if he could beat the record from the last time. Because he could say this, and I just want to make sure I got it right, get it right. He said, we would say, bless us, O Lord, and these are gifts which we are about to receive through our bounty in Christ our Lord. Amen. That was his prayer every time we prayed. And he literally would say it almost that fast. It was just like to get it over with. And I can remember that I would want to try to time him as he did it. But even as a little kid, I remember I wanted to stay as far away from him as possible because he was a mean, nasty man. There was a huge disconnect, a huge disconnect, and we need to ask ourselves, where are those disconnected places in my life that do not align with what I would say I believe? The third thing is defensiveness. Can you notice I'm, I'm trying to make this alliterated? So we've got, we've got doubt and disconnect, and we've got defensiveness. This is so we hopefully remember it. So defensiveness, or excuse-making <clears throat> for my sin. In other words, you know, I grew up in an angry home. I'm an angry person. You know, this is just the way it is. It's like I inherited it from, you know, my parents. This is, this is my personality. This is just the way I am. Or maybe it's because, you know, I, I didn't do that. Well, I wouldn't have done it if they hadn't done that. Or if you only know the work environment in which I'm in, I mean, nobody could, nobody could put up with the stuff that, you know, no wonder I act the way that I do. Defensiveness, excuse-making for our sin. Can you imagine? When Nathan went to David, couldn't David easily have said, well, you know, she shouldn't have been out there on the roof. You know, it's not, come on, you know, Nathan, it's not really my fault, you know, and, and you know, did you, remember I was having, there was that banquet that night, 
and you know I probably drank a little too much, so I wasn't really responsible for my my actions, you know, because I, I, I wasn't really, you know, totally in control, and right? Those things could fit into that story. But how often have we heard others, or maybe even we ourselves, have said things out of defensiveness or excuse-making instead of letting our response being like David's, oh, Lord, I've sinned against you. You call me to a life of holiness, You call me to a life of service. You call me to a life of loving your word. Oh, God, you call me to love my neighbor, and I can't stand my neighbor. We need to own our sin. And the fourth thing is a lack of disengagement with the things of the world. Doubt, disconnect, defensiveness, lack of disengagement. I love the world more than I like to let on to. There are idols in my life. Ezekiel 14, 1 to 3 says, Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me, and then the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, these men, the elders who had just sat down, have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? In 1988, when we came back for a home assignment, and uh, we were in Florida at the time, and a woman down there invited me to her home. And there's a picture. Ah, there. How many of you? I had to have a picture because I was afraid there would be people who would not know what a precious moments figurine was. Okay, so these are a little, you know, I think the new thing is willow now. You know, people have willow figurines, right? But anyway, back in the day, Precious moments were a huge deal. And she had me over to her house for lunch, and she said, oh, you know, I, want, I have something I want to show you, you know. So she opens this door in her house to this room, and in her house, in this room, I could hardly believe what I saw, but from ceiling to floor, all the way around, there's shelves, and they're full of precious moments figures. She had a table set in this room where no one's going to sit or anything. She just had it set for show, right, where there are plates. It's set with Precious Moments plates, and there's Precious Moments Afghans over the back of the chairs. And there, I mean, we're talking Precious Moments lampshades and lamps, nightlights. You've got, I mean, the whole room. Oh, wallpaper border. I forgot about that. She had, it was and crazy. But then she says to me, I've I'm so grateful because, you know, my husband was willing to build this room onto the house for, whoa, like we all say, whoa, she had problems, right? You know, we're talking, when, you, when I say idol, you can definitely think like, yeah, that's an idol. Way different than when we hear the word idol and immediately think of kind of the idols that we faced in Thailand all the time. And, and you know what? Got to be commonplace because they were everywhere. Huge, gigantic Buddhas on the sides of the mountains or in front of the bank that you went into or the shopping mall or at the house where you were visiting, you know, idols, 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 actual golden images. But that's not what it takes to steal our hearts. So I don't know if we have precious moments in our our house somewhere or our thing is fishing lures. I don't know, but if it's something... If it's anything that grabs hold of us, that takes up most of our thinking, our passion, more than our thinking or passion for Christ, then it's an idol. And God says, should I even let you inquire of me at all? What about the idols? Let's get rid of the idols. Matthew 13, 22, in the, the parable of the seed it says there that the, the seed that fell was in the thorns was all about the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Deceitfulness of wealth. And I think when we think of wealth, we think of like, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge and piles of gold or something like that and huge bank accounts. And can I just say something to us in love? If we have a hobby, by most of the world's standards, we are wealthy. If we have money that we can spend on something we don't really need, we are wealthy. So how has wealth, when we think of it that way, when we bring it down 
a peg or two, and we start thinking of it that way. It, what ways has wealth deceived me? Like my dear friend there, wealth had deceived her because she spent a lot of time looking for those figurines, dusting those figurines, taking care of them, right? A very innocent thing, and yet the deceitfulness of wealth was stealing the word from her life, stealing time from her life. So we need to keep those things in mind. So we talk about the overarching hindrance, which is unconfessed sin. The overarching highway is repentance, confessing our sin, bringing our sin before the Lord. I think that there's a slide. Yeah, overarching um, highway of repentance. And there are three things that main things, again, main things that are required for a lifestyle of repentance and an effective prayer life. And they are submission to God, agreement with his word, and humility. And literally, there could be a sermon on every single one of those. What does it mean to submit to God? How do we do that? How do I agree with my word, with his word, and how do I put it into practice in my life? And humility. How do I develop a life of humility? Those are questions to think about even as we go into this week. But these are things that are required in order that we can enter into repentance. If humility is a problem, I would encourage you to think of something that you would never do. Like, oh, there's no way I'm doing that. And then you make yourself do it. Do it as an act of worship to the Lord. It might be something like scrubbing toilets. Maybe it's something like coming here and scrubbing toilets in the house of God. I don't know. Maybe it's something like approaching your neighbor and offering to help cut the grass. or I, Something that is like really makes you feel like there's no way I, I'm going to do that. Are you willing to humble yourself and give that to the Lord as an act of worship and even consciously say, Lord, I want to do this in order as, a, as an instrument in your hand to help break pride in my life? Because God's word says what? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And tr- surely we do not want to be opposed by God. So shouldn't we be doing everything we can to see greater humility expand in our lives? Let's learn to serve. Let's learn to give. Let's learn to do things that we don't want to do. We want someone else to do it instead as an act of humility and service before the Lord. James 4, 6 to 10 says what I just said. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we should submit ourselves to God. We should resist the devil. Then he will flee. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit ourselves to God. You know, when Daniel got the word or he realized what was happening and that there was a 70-year time limit on this desolation of Jerusalem, like I said, he didn't pack his suitcase and get ready to leave. He put on the sackcloth and ashes. He did the, the weeping and the mourning on behalf of God's people. He entered into what God was doing. Aren't we all waiting for the end of the desolation of creation caused by the fall? Isn't our king coming back soon? Aren't we the bride of Christ, the church? Haven't we been given an assignment here on earth? Could it be, and I believe that it is, that we're to be ready, we're to be prepared, we're to be waiting and watching, and we need to be those who are praying into what we know is coming. Because part of that is the great harvest. And what we do as we pray and prepare our hearts, as we remove obstacles out of the way of our own hearts, we're preparing the way of the Lord in us and then through us to the world. 
in us and through us to the world. And then God can use us for his purposes. For his purposes. If you've been in an Alpha class, I believe there's been Alpha here at York Alliance, a couple Alpha classes, but if you've taken one of the Alpha courses, you know that one of their um, illustrations that they use, so forgive me if you've heard this, but is the idea of a pilot light on a gas stove. If you have a gas stove, a gas burner, you know there's that little blue pilot light. And that's to represent the deposit of the Holy Spirit that we're given when we come to faith in Christ. We're given a deposit of the Holy Spirit. Picture a blue pilot light. But can you burn, uh, boil water on that? No, of course not. You have to come along and turn up the flame. And the same is true in our walk with Christ. We receive that deposit of the Holy Spirit when we come to faith, but we need for the, fl- for the fire to be turned up, the heat to be turned up in order to boil water and be people of impact, people of change in our culture, people of change in our work environments, people of change in our homes. We need the fire in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Part of the way that that happens is as we participate with God regarding the true condition of our hearts. Regarding the true condition of our hearts. I I know that this is a heavy word, but when I consider the, the series that we're starting, the back to basics, can I just say I believe that even more basic than prayer is the basics of the hindrances in our lives and our hearts before God, the confessions of our hearts before God, that we need to start there, that there's a basic to the basic of prayer. And it needs to be me and God and the true condition of my heart before him. And so that's where we are this morning. You might be thinking, well, this is really a heavy message. I know it is. And and the worship team had us singing just as I am at the beginning of the service, right? But shouldn't that be the... The cry of our heart all the time, Lord, this is me, just as I am. I have nothing in my hands to give you. I only have this, there I go again, you know, me and my mouth. Got me into trouble, Lord. I, oh, God, forgive me. And, and then humbling myself and going to making restitution or whatever needs to happen. But taking sin as seriously as what God does. I'm going to ask the worship team to come right now. And as they come, and we're going to start um, into a time, a very brief time of reflective prayer, and I'd like to ask you something kind of unusual. If you came with a significant other this morning, I'd like you to ask you to just make sure there's a little space between you so that you're, you have a sense that when you close your eyes, you're going to be there just with Jesus. Okay, and can I ask you to close your eyes right now? Heavenly Father, we know that only you know our true, deepest thoughts. And Lord, I I know I'm grateful for that. I can't imagine if my life was placed up on a screen for all to see. But Lord, you see it all and you still love me. You still love us. How grateful we are for that. Father, I ask now that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and some words and you would change our hearts in your presence. So, people of God, I would ask that this be a time between you and Jesus, and I'm going to give you some scripture prompts, and I'd ask you to consider these. These might be some that you don't normally consider when considering the condition of your heart. Proverbs 28.9 says, If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Have you ignored the word of God? Have you rejected the truth? Bring this before the Lord. Lord, we would ask that you make us tender towards your word. In Jesus' name.
Proverbs 21.13 says, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Have you shut your ears to those who are in need? Do you lack compassion? Bring your heart before the Lord right now. Help us, O oh God, to love like you love. Give us your compassion, we pray. James 4, 3 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Has my asking been selfish? Do I spend most of my time praying for my own needs and wants? Are your motives out of line with the word of God? hard word for husbands among us and I'd like you to listen First Peter 3 7 says this husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers men of God at York Alliance is there brokenness in marital relationships that you need to take care of as the head of your homes, as the spiritual heads? Thank you, Jesus. Father, we want to turn from sin and idolatry and everything, everything that that covers, Lord. The specifics, oh God, we bring them before you and ask that you would remove these obstacles out of our way so that we might experience the deeper life of the Spirit. End of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.